take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll look together in just a moment at verses 18 through 25. I have noticed uh, through the years preaching on Christmas and Easter that we tend to be less responsive in some ways. I won't say that ministry is less fruitful during those seasons. I think there's a great opportunity to be intentional and invitational and all of those things. There's something about the holiday seasons that have the effect of distracting us. We're sort of pressing in and checking all of the traditional boxes, attending services and various other things. And I only mention that just as a word of exhortation to you that you may be here this morning because God has something eternally significant to do in your life and as an encouragement to sort of suppress the thoughts of this afternoon and what you'll do for family get-togethers and the pot roast that may be overcooking as we speak whatever potential distractions exist for you I want to encourage you to, to concentrate your thoughts and to settle your minds for the next few moments on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have admittedly uh, done some second-guessing at the beginning of this series and along the way a few times at um, how bringing a, a series of doctrinaire messages during the Christmas season might be effective or ineffective. But what I've tried to show you, what I hope we've been able to see together the last couple of weeks and again today and Lord willing, next week, that these doctrines are of incredible value. They are the foundation upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ stands. They matter. Every breath that we take is impacted by the doctrines that we have discussed over the last couple of weeks and those that we'll continue to discuss within this Doctrine of Christmas series. So I, I hope that these gospel truths are settling into your heart and, and bearing the fruit that I have prayed they would um, for the last several weeks. The first week in our series, we talked about the incarnation of Jesus. And we were careful on that day to note that just because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ does not mean that we are celebrating the beginning of Jesus Christ. That at the birth of Jesus... The only begotten Son of God stepped out of the glory of heaven into the hardships and difficulties of this world, clothed himself in flesh, dwelt among us without sin, died in our place, and rose again the third day that we might have everlasting life. We sing it beautifully, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. That's what Jesus did in the incarnation. Last week we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. I've answered more questions about the Trinity in the last seven or eight days than I have in all of my ministry. And those are good things. That's a, that's a positive. And, and, and that again is such a foundational doctrine. All else is built up on that foundation. And what we discussed last week, and I hope in a helpful way, is that the, the triune God of heaven is at work in the world. He is at work in history for the glory of his name and for the salvation of his people. 
at the birth of Jesus, what we celebrate is the great love of the Father for us, so much so that He sent forth His only begotten Son, that by virtue of the death, burial, resurrection, and righteousness of Jesus, we might have fellowship with the Father and the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are at work for the salvation of God's people. What I'd like to talk to you about this morning is the virgin birth, the miraculous circumstances under which the incarnation took place, how it is that the Father sent His only begotten Son into this world that He might save us from our sin. It's always been interesting to me, it was as a new believer and continues to be, that the virgin birth is among that handful of doctrines that are uh, first among doctrines to be challenged by unbelievers. But doesn't it stand to reason that God clothing himself in flesh, disrupting the history of this world for our salvation would begin in a monumental, miraculous kind of way? If you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, let's stand together. So we'll begin reading in verse number 18 of Matthew's Gospel. We might just as well begin reading in verse number 1, but if you're familiar with Matthew 1 through, 1, 1 through 17, for your sake and for mine, you'll understand, we'll just begin reading in verse number 18. How about that? Verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for your son. Thank you, Lord, for a miraculous event 2,000 years ago where Christ broke through by the Father's great love. Thank you for the guidance, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Lead us to discern rightly and to consider deeply the truths of this text and the promises of the gospel. Save some today, God, we pray. Encourage and build up your church. Make of us more than we might be on our own. May, may the name of Jesus be greatly magnified. It's in that name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. What I'd like to do is to work through these four truths that I want to share with you this morning. And then like last week, we'll go back to our text and we'll see these truths verified in a variety of ways throughout our teaching of the passage. 
I want you to note first, and this, this is the, the teaching of verses 1 through 17 of our chapter here, that Jesus is born of the line of David. Jesus is born of a kingly line because Jesus was to be our great king. Matthew 1 is drawing all of the Bible together in a beautiful way. We'll see more of this later on in our passage. But what Matthew 1, 1 through 17 does for us is to trace the genealogy of Jesus down through generations of kings all the way back to Abraham who fathered Isaac, Isaac who fathered Jacob, etc., etc., etc. The different gospels present the genealogy uh, or genealogical background of Jesus in different ways depending on their point of emphasis. For instance, the gospel of Matthew is about King Jesus. So we have a king's genealogy. The gospel of Mark is about Jesus as servant and servants don't need ancestral genealogy. So there isn't one in the gospel of Mark. We move abruptly into the life and ministry of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, the genealogy traces the lineage of Jesus back to Adam, to the first man, because the emphasis of Luke's Gospel is the humanity of Jesus, that God is man among us. The Gospel of John, being about the divinity of Jesus Christ, begins with a divine genealogy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have something of both king and God here in chapter number 1, verses 1 through 17, demonstrating for us that Jesus is the son of David, that he's the king we've hoped for. He's the one that we've been looking for, and he binds all of the Old and New Testaments together in doing so. Secondly, I want you to note that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, the The genealogy of Jesus helps us to understand that Jesus is the son of David. But the miraculous circumstances under which Jesus is born helps us to understand that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary under miraculous circumstances conceived by the Holy Spirit. Number three, Jesus was born to fulfill the promise of Scripture. Every hopeful expectation born forth from our study of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. We kind of see things from our perspective, but bear in mind that we are 2,000 years removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with many thousands of years having come prior to that. Thousands of years of building anticipation. Thousands of years of hearing from God about the possibility of our sin being removed, a Messiah who would come and do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Scripture. Fourth and lastly, Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Jesus was not born to set an example for us, to be one among many good teachers, to provide a pattern of life that we might conform to. He wasn't just born as an expression of God's affection for the world. Jesus came for the express purpose of saving us from our sins. Jesus didn't just come to give us a reason for the season, as we so glibly say. Jesus 
came to rescue us from our sin. Because of your sin and my sin, we are separated from God. And there is no reconciliation between an unholy man and a holy God apart from the life, the death, the blood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to rescue his people, his people from their sins. Look at verse 18. Let's study the text together. The Bible says the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. This is how it happened, Matthew said. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now there's some cultural features of our verse 18 that need to be unpacked a bit. They are engaged or betrothed, as some of your translations will render the term. Mary and Joseph have entered into a legally binding agreement to be married. But before the marriage would take place, the period or the season of betrothal would uh, first uh, sort of unfold, usually a 12-month period of engagement. Now, you'll learn about me over time that I'm not a fan of long engagements. And I think if we ever got serious as a people about sexual purity, most none of us would be big fans of long engagements. But here you have a 12-month betrothal period. Now, bear in mind, we're not talking about 30-somethings getting engaged, as it often happens in our day and age, but uh, adolescents, a, a young Mary, a young Joseph. And when the betrothal was begun, uh, the bride's price would be paid, and the 12-month 12 12 period was a period during which the purity, the moral and sexual purity of the bride would be proven during that period. 12 months is 12 months because it's longer than nine. And so if there's any impurity, any indiscretion that has gone unnoticed, it would come to light during the betrothal period. Now, there is again about this engagement a, a degree of, of legal binding. There's a real commitment to the marriage once the engagement or the betrothal has happened. And here's some good practical advice for those of you who may be on the verge of engagements or marriage, however that unfolds. Here's, here's my advice to you. It may not be legally binding when you are engaged in our day and age, but it's, it's really wise to approach the engagement as though it were legally binding. There, there are social pressures, family pressures that enter in. Here's my counsel to you. If you are considering being engaged as a couple, I would advise you to do the premarital counseling that you'll be required to do for any of our pastoral staff to do your wedding before you do the engagement. This is actually what Miss Brandy and I did when we were dating. We went through pre premarital counseling. There's a couple of motivations for that. One, we came from broken family backgrounds, and we wanted to make sure that we had our heads on right and that we knew what we were doing as we entered into this thing. And I think both of us were fearful that once the engagement happens, even if we see some signs, we're probably not going to bail because of social and, and family pressures. The other is Brother Wade's cheat. And I figure if I'm going to buy a ring, I'm going to be in this thing all the way. So we went through that whole process on the front end. But there's some wisdom in that. Moms and dads, there's wisdom in that for your kids as you guide them and counsel them as to the decisions that they're going to be making regarding their future husband or wife. So they've entered into this engagement. 
The process, the, the, the period of betrothal is unfolding. Bear in mind, again, that the purity of the bride is being proven through this period of betrothal. And the Bible says that before they came together, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that we know she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit does not indicate that Joseph understands at this juncture that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He knows only that she is pregnant but not by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, the Bible says, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Matthew's careful to note Joseph's righteous, righteous character. There, this may be of encouragement to some of you, but I think this is worth saying. One of the most faithful fathers one of the most righteous men in the New Testament was a step-parent who loved the boy Jesus, who invested in the boy Jesus without real obligation. And I just want to say to some faithful stepdads and stepmoms that you're not second-class parents, that God has a plan and a purpose for you. And I, and I, I hope that lifts your spirits and encourages you somewhat. Here Joseph really steps up and, and, do, and does a good and righteous thing. He's, he's on the verge of, of, of taking kind of a middle position. He, he could have been much more severe with Mary. There's allowance in Old Testament law that she could have been killed for the act of adultery. It was assumed that, that has, that's what had unfolded. But Joseph takes the course of putting her away secretly or divorcing her secretly as it's described in the text. That is, until verse 20, where the Bible says, After he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid there's been some indiscretion. The child that's growing in her womb has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's a miracle in the womb of Mary. What has, what has been begun in her is the salvation of nations. What's conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. Now, Men will know this language, especially those of you who are older men. This is not what's often referred to within the Catholic tradition as the Immaculate Conception, which I knew before I knew any other doctrines because of Franco Harris and the 1972 AFC Championship game and uh, those shows that came on when I was a child on Sunday afternoon before the football game kicked off. The Immaculate Conception is about the birth of Mary, not the birth of Jesus. And it's kind of a convoluted way of suggesting that Mary is somehow kept from the curse of Adam's sin. We don't believe that, and the Bible doesn't teach that. But there is no mistaking that what God does in the womb of the Virgin Mary is a miracle. The child is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, she'll give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus which means Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. Think about this. There is a flood of God's wrath against us. 
And, and the only thing that, that turns the tide of that wrath against us is the blood of Jesus Christ. For the smallest of our sins, we are deserving of eternal hell. For the smallest of our sins, even if you remove the biblical witness from the account, if you, if you take away what the Bible says about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, take, take your own system for understanding good versus bad. If I were to sit down with you and say, tell me what is unacceptable for someone to do within the framework of your own self-contrived system, what is good and bad in your imagination, you have either violated your standards in the past, are violating them in the present, or will violate them in the future. Even by your own standards, you are a sinner. This is before we ever get to what the Bible says about what is good and what is bad, what is moral and what is immoral. There's judgment for that sin. We may quibble about what sin is. We may even quibble about the severity of the punishment for that sin. But listen to me, the severity of our punishment is not about the magnitude of our sin, but the position of the one offended. There is no one greater who might be offended against our sin than the holy, holy, holy God of heaven. For the smallest in your estimation of your transgressions, you and I are deserving of everlasting hell. This is why it's incredible news that God has so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came to take away our sins. Jesus came to the world with an agenda. And the agenda was to deal with your sin debt and with mine. Through the shedding of Jesus' blood, our sins are washed away. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we may be joined with him to have life everlasting, walking in the newness of life. Jesus came to deal with our sin mess. There are even temporary results for this. Now, there's no mistaking the fact that there are certain things that we might do in this life that have consequences that can live even through a person's conversion experience. If you go out and you commit a great crime and you are incarcerated and then born again in jail, I got news for you, you're going to stay there. I had a great uncle who was a prison minister for a long time, and he, he once shared with me, the, the way I know that a person is serious about their conversion experience in prison is they don't usually try to get out after that. They don't use their new confession as leverage for leniency when they go before the parole board, or they're not leaning on the warden to somehow deal differently with them now since they've come into this new relationship with Jesus. There, there are lasting consequences for the dreaded decisions that we make in the here and now. But at the same time, there can be no mistaking the fact that not only has Jesus addressed our spiritual disaster, which is sin, but Jesus is actively saving us from ourselves and the consequences of sinful decisions, even in the here and now. Where would you be apart from Jesus Christ? If God had not kept you back from yourself and the brain-dead decisions we are so inclined to make, where would we be? I'd be dead or in prison. I can tell you where Brother Wade would be. And there's a lot of you be planted beside me or sitting down at the Stony Lonesome. 
Others of you would have your families in an absolute mess. You would have continued on an immoral track. There's a thousand ways that we might have destroyed ourselves apart from the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit sent to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, Jesus came to save us from our sins. This is not secondary. This is not ancillary. This is not just something that Jesus happened to do while he was here. Jesus came for the business of saving us from our sins. And so he bears the name Jesus. Verse 22, the Bible says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, I love this, and I hope that you will as much as I do. Think for a moment about all the Old Testament has to say. We read the Old Testament now. In light of the New Testament, we see everything differently than we have in the past. If you remember the old Bruce Willis film, um, The Sixth Sense, at the end, y'all remember that? I see dead people. That's like the line that lives on from, from that film. And then in the end, you realize that Bruce Willis was dead all along, and then it sort of runs you through the film, and you can see all the ways this connects up, and you can never see the movie the same way as you did the first time reading through. Now, we look back from this side of the cross, and we see all of these indicators of what God would do in Jesus, even back to the very beginning. I think we probably understand Genesis 3.15, the first of those verses, where God says, I'm going to give Eve a child. She's going to have a descendant, and he will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel in the process. We understand that verse the way that we do because we have the perspective we have from this side of a Roman cross and an empty garden grave. But that perspective was not enjoyed by those who walked through those years of history. Early in the Bible, there is the promise of Adam's curse being reversed. Adam and Eve partake of forbidden fruit in the garden, and humanity falls in Adam. God says, I'm going to give a seed who will crush the serpent. But there's a long period of time that passes before the seed that crushes the head of the serpent comes, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are raised up in the Genesis narrative. They are to be the head, the kings, so to speak, of a nation that would be a holy nation unto God. They would be the means of God blessing Israel and blessing the nations. God begins with a missional purpose. God was not primarily involved in, in the work of Israel, the nation of Israel exclusively. He was involved in the nation of Israel for the blessing of the nations. God has always been actively missional in his redemptive work in this world. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are the beginning of the fledgling nation Israel, but before long the Israelites are carried away into their Egyptian bondage. They're enslaved for 400 years. Before Moses brings them out, and when Moses brings them out, God gives them the law. And in Deuteronomy 17, God says, what you need as a king, but you need the right kind of king. You're going to have to have a king in order to make it. And in case that point wasn't well communicated, we come to the book of Judges, which was a real dark spot in Israel's history. Where the Bible says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. If we didn't know it coming away from the law of Moses, we knew it by the time we got to the end of the book of Judges. We need a king. We come to 1 Samuel, and the people of Israel get a king. But they get a king like neighboring nations. They get Saul first. And the nation of Israel learns that not only do they need a king, but they need a good king. And then we come to 2 Samuel. 
And David ascends to the throne of Judah first and then Israel and unites the 12 tribes of Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I'm going to have a king in the line of David on the throne of Israel forever. That's the hope of the nation. And the people of Israel learn not only do they need a king, they need a good king, and they need a king in the line of David. You go to the books of First and Second Kings, and king after king after king raises the hopeful expectation of the people only to find them failing to bring them what they hoped he might bring. They need a king to do more than Solomon could do. They need a king to do more than Hezekiah could do. They need a king that can do more than Josiah can do. All they really know at this point is that they need a king. They need a good king, a morally upright king. They need a Davidic king. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, this is good stuff. And Isaiah chapter 7 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now, they knew they needed a son of David, but until Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, they had no clue whatsoever that what they needed was the Son of God. When Matthew cites Isaiah 7 and verse number 14, he brings all of the teaching of that entire text into Matthew chapter 1. He says to them, everything that you've hoped for, all that you have longed for, has been brought to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, the baby in the manger is the Messiah you've been waiting for. The baby in the manger is God in the flesh. The baby in the manger is the Son incarnate. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. Indeed, He's the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams. Isaiah 9 and verse 2, the Bible says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you've shattered their oppressive yoke, the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now listen, they, they know nothing of the divine blood that flows in the vein of the promised king. They only know they need a king. Now put yourself into the sandals of Isaiah's congregation. Are y'all ready? And the next lines are stated. For a child will be born for us. Oh yeah, there's going to be a child. A child destined for kingship. A child destined for greatness. A son will be given to us. Oh yes, a son in the line of David. We're all on the same page. And the government will be on his shoulders. Yes, he'll bear great authority. That's the kind of king we need. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Oh, yes, he'll be benevolent, kind, generous, compassionate, understanding. But no one could have seen the next line coming. He's not just Wonderful Counselor. He is Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When Isaiah 7 and 14 are cited in Matthew chapter 1, the hearts of Israel leapt. God has done what he promised he would do. Our expectations building for thousands of years have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, is the king we've always needed. 
Before we, before we moved, there was a, a, a morning radio show that played on a station local to us in our old ministry. And in uh, the early days of this particular radio show, they didn't have the money to run a big ad campaign. So what they did is they said, in sort of comedic fashion, when you see the billboards for the other station, we want you to think of us. That, that's what they did. So, so here's my charge to you. We're entering into 2020, a, a presidential campaign year. When you see the constant barrage of presidential campaign, billboards, signs, posters, stickers, and commercials, let's not leave off social media posts. I want you to remember that although we, in a very real way, have a foot in this world, that our primary citizenship is in heaven, that we have a good and faithful king who is morally upright, who is perfect in his righteousness, who always does what is right, who is beloved among his subjects. He has an absolute 100% approval rating and who never falls victim to his foes. We have just the king we need in our King Jesus Christ. You'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us in a way that must have been un fathomable for the people of Israel. God was now in their midst. The last time we'd seen anything like this was in the garden of Genesis 2, where the Bible says in one of my favorite verses, in the cool of the day, God came to walk in the midst of the garden. He came seeking fellowship with Adam and with Eve. And now God has come to traverse the challenges and hardship of infancy that he might enjoy fellowship with Mary and with Joseph. Yes, but with you and me as well. God has invaded history. God has come into this world. We sing it beautifully. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. God is with us through the work of Jesus Christ. God has come close. Do you remember in weeks past, we, we talked about the severity of God's righteousness and the danger of being in close proximity to that? People talk about worship experiences as this touchy-feely kind of thing that always leaves us feeling better, but that is not the pattern we see in the Scripture. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. Habakkuk said, it's as though my, my bones are rotten within me. John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and an angel appeared, Jesus appeared, and I was struck down with, with great fear. It is a dreadful thing to be in proximity to the severe righteousness of God. And yet Jesus clothes himself with flesh, and God draws near in a way never before experienced by sinful mankind. God is with us through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? Father, Son, and Spirit at work in us and around us in history in order that we might know the nearness of fellowship with God that he intended for his people. Verse 24, the Bible says, when Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Aren't you glad for the virgin birth of our Savior Jesus. I, I'd, I'd love to know what it really looked like in Bethlehem on that night. I'd be interested to know the effect that removing the sin nature from an infant child would have on that infant child 
we'll know perhaps in the sweet by and by. But I have sneaking suspicions that it was not as we often sing a silent night in Bethlehem. I suspect it looked much different than what we imagine. When you remove all of our additions to tradition and what the scene might have been like, I, I think it was probably much different. But in the midst of all of that, there was an infant child, virgin born, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. In all, of his, in all of his sweetness, we look at our children in that state and we say, oh, aren't they precious? They're so innocent. And they're really not. They're really not. Give them 10 minutes and they'll prove it to you. But here in the hands of Mary in a Bethlehem stable was a child of absolute innocence. I think I've shared this before. You'll hear it a hundred times through the years of the, the birth of our oldest son. And we had this whole spiritual ceremony we were going to do in labor and delivery. You know, we had it all mapped out, which was just foolish, but that's what we thought we were going to do. And, and then he was finally born after many hours of labor. I think it was worse on me than it was on Brandy. What do y'all think? <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, ladies. And then they, they gave him to us. And I, and I, I just remember thinking, I, I, I think for the first time, I understand a bit more of what it means to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is what God has done in order to take our sin away. And I would invite you this morning to receive the gift that is Jesus Christ. To love him, to live for him, to serve him. To run to him for the forgiveness of your sin and for the promise of everlasting life. If you've come in this morning as a guest, maybe we're invited or felt compelled to come because it's the Christmas season. That happens, and I wouldn't ridicule that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But I want to caution you against what is implied by our culture. That being a Christian, that going to heaven is about this superficial affirmation that God exists. The Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble. What Jesus said is, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You must turn away from your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Now here's the great news. There's no trick. There's no gimmicks. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This morning, if you would turn away from your sin and run to the cross of Calvary, the only source of life-giving grace, there is mercy waiting for you.